you know a spot. But not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic so slow, connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Moments like seeing my son's team cheer him on mean a lot to me. But after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or MBC, which is breast cancer that has spread to other parts of the body, they mean even more. I take Ibrance, Palbociclib. Ibrance 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for adults with HR positive HER2 negative NBC as the first hormonal based therapy. Ask your doctor about Ibrance and visit Ibrance.com. Ibrance may cause low white blood cell counts that may lead to serious infections. Ibrance may cause severe inflammation of the lungs. Both of these can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrands, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are or plan to become pregnant, or are breastfeeding. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia, where we rage against the machine, where we raise our voices against injustice and stand up for justice, where we embrace hope and joy with an optimism for a brighter, more just future. Each week, I'll be dropping knowledge, whether it's a solo episode from me or a hearty discussion with esteemed guests doing great things in spaces and places of politics, entertainment, social justice, and beyond. We get real, baby. I mean, really real. We get honest. We get up close and personal for you. Yes, you. Because everybody is somebody. Before we begin, I want to give a special shout out to my team. Thank you, Sim. Tiffany, Sam, and the team over at Good Juju Studios, Erica England, Pepper Chambers, the hot one, and my social media team. Happy November, everybody. Look at us already in November. And this month is the perfect month to dig into activism. It is always the right time to talk about activism, leadership, and community. And I have the pleasure of speaking to the one and only Bria Baker, 
Bria is not only an activist and a writer, but she is also a freedom fighter. Hello, somebody. We do need, God knows we need, don't even get me started. We need more freedom fighters in the land, baby. Yes, we do. And so I am excited to talk to Bria about what she sees on the front lines, what she sees as one of some of the most pressing issues of our time, and what does she think about our collective future moving forward. So come with me as you do every single week on this amazing Hello Somebody journey. We're going in. We're going in with Bria. Bria, hey, darling. I am so honored to be here with you, Senator Turner. Thank you so much for that uh, intro. Oh my gosh, I have to keep you in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a high honor. As somebody who is introduced all over the world, I will say to you, I say the same thing. When I get me, when I get a good introduction, I'm, I'm saying, I got right. to person, right? <laughs> got to take this exactly. Over. I'm like, I got to make that my ringtone, freedom fighter. I just loved how you said it. Thank you so much for having me. No, you, you are, you are that. I mean, you are right of freedom fighter. You've been working on the front lines for almost a decade, even as young as yeah. you are. And it makes me remember that a lot of times when we talk about the past and even sometimes the present, but I'm really thinking about the civil rights movement. I'm just going to channel mm -hmm. that in it. Mm -hmm. there, it was a generational proposition. And when we talk about it, we talk about it only in the sense of elders, which is fine mm -hmm. because it's a continuum. We do mm -hmm. definitely understand that in the, in the African-American community. However, a lot of the freedom fighters were also very young. You know, the freedom riders, the, the, the college students that sat at the lunch counters. I've right. some elders who were even children in the movement, you know, 10 years old, 11 years old, and they're still with us who were very much apart because their elders at the time were in the movement. So it's definitely a continuum. But to be That's able to say that you have been in this for a decade is 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 a lot for me to say. And you first started as a student and now you are a national and global strategist. What does that mean to you? I mean, what what were your first steps into the world of first activism and how did you evolve to being an unapologetic activist? Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, I so agree with you as far as the emphasis that is on elders. And I think where it comes from is that we wait to celebrate people when they are elders, right? So a John Lewis was not being celebrated when he was the 23-year-old rabble-rousing. People thought he was a troublemaker, right? Yeah. And then he flipped that and was like, yeah, I'm a proud troublemaker. But we waited as a country to celebrate him until he was an elder. And then they like to soften the legacy and make it sound nice and palatable. And they don't want to say that he was out there leading the masses and boycotts and all of those things. So it, it, it definitely feels that way that we wait. Um, but my first steps, it didn't feel like I was stepping into activism. It just felt like I was stepping into a mass of people that were tired of being tired. Um, and I'm, I'm of that Trayvon generation, as we're called. And I was 17 the same year that he was assassinated by George Zimmerman. And I just remember that being a lot of firsts for me. It was at the time when social media was just coming out, it was the first time I engaged in digital activism. We took our photo as a family with the hoodies and the Skittles in one hand, the iced tea in the other. And after that was me constantly finding uh, protests and rallies that I wanted to be at. And in those moments, I definitely considered myself more of a follower than an activist. If somebody was telling me, we're showing up at this intersection in New York City, I was hopping on my Long Island Railroad train to get to that protest and make sure that I was there. And 
over time, it became, wait a second, I'm going to the protest, but what am I doing in between them? And that is when I would say is when I really stepped into my activism and really being unapologetic about it. And for me, that was sort of, if I'm sticking with the Trayvon story, it was the non-indictment um, that and the acquittal that really was like, oh, wait, we just did all of this for like a year and a half and we didn't get the justice that we had been looking for. And maybe that's because we're showing up to the protest one off and thinking that that's enough. And really we have to be doing something different, something in between. And that's when I really stepped into, wait, I gotta learn from those who came before me, understand why are we still in this cycle? Because I don't want to see more of this happening. And I mean, now here I am 10 years later and we're very much seeing a lot of that same stuff happening. And it's constantly forcing me to really reckon with is our movement um, innovative enough to get out of the rut that we're in? Yeah, those are all good points. And I cannot believe it has been 10 years, but it has indeed um, mm. been 10 years. I want to pick up on the point um, that you made a little earlier before we deal with the point that you just made, which is we wait to celebrate folks until they are older. That oh, yeah. is profound. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it touched me when you said that because that is absolutely true. And we do kind of soften their positioning. Mm -hmm. Yes, Congressman John Lewis, the great, late, great Congressman John Lewis, making good trouble. He was making trouble. They called him a troublemaker. But when we look at others like him, the Stokely Carmichaels, you know, the mm -hmm. Diane Ashes, and we could throw our sisters out there, it is absolutely the same thing mm -hmm. so we being an american society we do that that's that's part of the american culture unfortunately because other cultures so two parts to this one recognizing people in their youth for the work mm -hmm. that we need to do a better job of that and then secondarily i believe we need to do a better job of also lifting our elders because it can feel very yes. much being thrown away because they're not in their youth. And I would love to get your take on, on that. Mm, it's so, that's such a good point. Cause I do think it's a double-edged sword. It's not that elders are the ones who are being heralded and all of these things. What we find is that we wait a really long time to honor our elders. And then by the time that we are, it's almost like we're treating them as statues. And we're taking them off the shelf and saying, oh, now we want to do the John Lewis this and the John Lewis that. Um, but when John Lewis was a young congressman and really needed that support and that professional development and that care and that mentorship, people were waiting for him to fall. And I see that happening now, too, where it's, OK, I see this young activist. I might celebrate them here or there, but I'm waiting to see if they'll stick around. I'm waiting to see if this is a gimmick, if this is, oh, you're so cute, right? That cute activism. And I'm waiting to see if it's something real and substantive. But the reality is, if we were bothering to celebrate and support them along the way, we'd have a lot more activists sticking around and who are able to sustain years and years and years worth of work. Um, but I think it's that thing of, okay, I'm gonna critique you every step of the way. And then when I realize that your legacy is too strong to be ignored, I'm gonna then try and co-opt it and say that I've been there the whole time. It's definitely what this country has done with Dr. King, right? Yeah. He was not supported at all, especially right before he was assassinated because he was touching on things. They were like, wait a second, it was cool when you were doing the black, right. boys, black girls and white boys and white girls, but now you're talking about the Vietnam War. Yeah. Now you're trying to unionize uh, sanitation workers. We don't like that. That's a little too much for us. But now, decades later, you have some of those same people who not only like would have been, 
but were elected and pushing against Dr. King and are still elected and now saying, okay, we could do a Dr. King day. And, and at worst, weaponizing Dr. King against activists now and saying, oh, these young activists, they need to be more like Dr. King. If they were back in the day, you would have been saying the same thing to them. Oh, he needs to be more like this person. So I think it's how the powers that be get away with being on the wrong side of history is that they try to pretend like they were right all along. Um, meanwhile, they're really diluting that person's message. And we have to be the ones that say, mm -mm, you ain't gonna do that. And I know that you're no stranger to that because I see people doing that with you all the time. And it's like, no, you can't dilute a Senator Turner. I am the community I serve. I'm not talking to them, I am them. And, mm -hmm. and when, they, when they can't do that is when they try to try and circumvent and, and take you down or say, oh, well, actually, I think what she was trying to say was, it's like, no, 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 I was clear. That was clear that first time. Crystal. Yeah, no, I mean, Bri, that is very powerful. And, you know, Dr. Cornell West has a, a book that I do want to recommend to the folks who are joining us on this particular journey today, which is uh, The Radical King. And I'm so glad yes. you wrote that book because just as you were saying, a nice way of saying that they softened even John mm -hmm. Lewis, or he was Congressman John Lewis, they definitely have tried to soften what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. actually stood for from calling out white liberals to, you know, talking about economics, militarism, uh, materialism and poverty. Right. I mean, right. He made it all the way out. And, and, and when he said, we coming for the check, hello, somebody. <laughs> you hello. know, they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about I have a dream, but they don't want to talk about that I'm coming for the check. And the critique he made, especially to white liberals, and that he much preferred to deal with the Ku Klux Klaner. This is what he, I pre, I'm paraphrasing. Mm. And the reason why he said that is because even when there's some hatred or disagreement at, 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 at best, I want to deal with the person who I know where they coming from, even if we ain't rocking together versus the person that's pretending and hiding behind when all along you are part of the problem. So we have some work to do both as an American culture, but also, especially as an African-American culture, I often talk about we have picked up other people's bad habits. And in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and the one that really gets to me the most, Bria, is how we treat our elderly. Because if all of us are blessed, you know, today's 20-year-old will be tomorrow's 50-year-old and then 60 and then 70. Right. And in a more traditional Afrocentric culture, our elders are to be lifted and respected. Yes. That doesn't mean we got to agree with everything that they do, but we don't right. throw them away in this kind of tribal, you know, kind of uh, culture that was part of uh, West African tradition, you know, from the griot to the council of elders, you know, all of those things. And I'm not just saying lift somebody up uh, just because they're elder and they did, doing a disservice to our people. I do believe that there's a certain type of respect but hey, you got to bring it to get it. Then we ain't going to be cussing out no elders. Let me just say that. <laughs> right, no. <laughs> yeah. but, but we don't always have to agree. But I guess what I'm saying is that I would love to see our community really connect with yeah. that part of who we are as a people. So true. It's so priceless to be able to sit with elders who've done it before and be able to learn from their mistakes instead of going through it yourself. But also to realize that what I think I might know about you, I'm just scratching the surface. That's For example, right. I know that when the Black Panthers were coming around, it was this, it was so big on self-defense because the idea had been, why are we cowering? 
to whiteness and to white people, right? And it was that idea that we've got to be more protective of our communities. Yeah. And that came from a really beautiful place. And the deeper they got into their learning and their connecting with elders who had come before them, I think they were able to understand that it wasn't that people were cowering, but it's that they were responding to a very vicious reality that when you go up against these systems, if you are not careful, they will come back with something you're not necessarily prepared for. And what we saw was how the Black Panther Party was taken down was a lot of those ass assassination attempts, the discrediting of the organizations. And that had been things that had happened to SCLC members before them, SNCC members before them, Malcolm X, who inspired them the most. And so when we get to sit and learn from our elders and say, oh, this is why you made the decision you made, we're not shaming them or blaming them for the decisions, even if we choose to go another way. And that's when I can see, when I see like young organizers now, and it's almost as if they're talking down at other past movements, you know, if you had done your job, we wouldn't be here. Well, I thought I've been doing a pretty great job the last 10 years and we still here. So that's not what it is. We just have to stop cool. underestimating the people we're going up against and know that we can still be super intentional. We won't always get it right, but I'm certainly not going to blame those who whose shoulders I stand on for doing the best that they could with the resources they had. And now that we have more resources, we may switch it up and revamp it. And that's why you bring both. You have the wisdom, you have the, the fresh insight, and it merges and comes together. And I'm so grateful for the, for the mentors in my life that I've been able to learn that firsthand. Yeah, amen to that, Bria. I mean, you, we need to put you, you, having you explain that to some of your peers and even people younger so that we have a well-rounded view. And a lot of it was just flat out survival. You right. will be killed. You know, one of the reasons, I mean, there was a time when you couldn't look a white person in the face. There were uh, laws and also, you know, the, the jure and de facto, what happens in reality and also what happens in law. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in reality that was not law, but in the South, you know, a black man, especially, but black women too, you you better not eyeball a white person to get you killed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There were some laws on the book, codes on the books that said that there, black people couldn't talk loudly around white women. I mean, it will get you killed, lynched, right. your stuff burned down. So a lot of the tactics that some of our elders use was both prudent for the moment because they were trying to live the continuous right. life. Yes. Right. I mean, let's get that under, you know, understanding. And you're right, mm -hmm. being able to sit down and just Stephen Covey, who's a world-renowned leadership guru, he says, seek first to understand and then be yes. Since we're talking about elders, who are some of the elders that inspire you? They could be dead or living, famous, or just somebody who you really love in the whole world might not necessarily know about them. Yes, definitely. I'll do a little of both. Um, I want to honor the elders who literally made my work in activism possible. I first began um, doing this work in a real way with Carmen Perez, um, who is the uh, president and CEO at The Gathering for Justice um, based out of New York and California. And she introduced me to Mr. Harry Belafonte, who's her mentor. And so I've gotten to sit at both of their feet and learn so much from them. And it was so beautiful because when I first came to know them, um, as, as a unit and as a pair who are doing this work at the Gathering for Justice. I was 20, um, Carmen was 39, and I believe Mr. Belafonte was in his 80s. And so it was just so cross-generational, like so cross-generational. And she's a Latina woman. Me and Mr. B are both Black, but he's Caribbean. And so there were so many um, different perspectives. And just getting to hear from him 
how he was able to fundraise for the March on Washington, what his relationship with Dr. King was, what his relationship with other lesser known organizers was. I have learned so, so much and it's inspired directly a lot of the work that I've been a part of since then because I'm like, wait, he did this this way and it, it worked really well. And I think there's an opportunity here in that same way. And it's just, such an honor. Now Mr. Belafonte is in his early 90s and still going. And I think that reinvigorates me that like anytime I'm getting burnt out and tired when, you know, I'm a very big proponent of rest. And I say, well, that's why we have a marathon. That's why we have people we pass the baton to because he's still 93 and doing it because he was able to pass the baton when he needed to and then take it right on back. And he said, wait a second, I think I can be useful here. And that is what I can only hope for myself is that I'll be in my 90s still cultivating relationships with people in their 20s and younger and being a support to them in the ways that I can. So I am just so honored to sit at both of their feet and learn from them still to this day. And then I would say an activist in a different sense than people think of would be my paternal grandfather, Alfred Baker. Um, and I think growing up, I had always aspired to the activism of people like an Angela Davis. I was like, I, I want my, my hair to speak for me and I wanna have a bullhorn in one hand and a picket sign in the other. And yeah. I still, you know, that's where you could find me is getting arrested or, or with somebody's sign. But I found myself really understanding to your point that there are some people whose activism was their survival. And my grandfather is that kind of person. And um, he was someone who said, not only am I going to survive, I'm going to leave a legacy behind for my family. And as a young Black kid who grew up in North Carolina, moved in the Great Migration up north, and then went right back to North Carolina, he bought 86 acres for our family and was insistent upon land ownership being a form of activism. And he's no longer here now, but we all feel that through him and we carry that on, that there is nothing more important than owning what you've got so nobody can take what you have because you can't bully me. I have somewhere to put my head at night, regardless of what you do. Cool. And I think that is so important for us as a family to have. And I want every black family to have something like that. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I wish folks could see us. I mean, I'm, I'm fit with <laughs> my seat. I got goosebumps. I'm like, Hey man. And in my mind, I want to jump in, but my other mind, let her get it out. Don't jump in. You know, how sometimes people small <laughs> ain't really listening. I am listening and wanting to call a response all at the same time. Bria, amen. 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 And thank God for your grandfather's vision. One of the reasons why and Sherman's executive <laughs> Sherman order yes. number 15. Can we just pause right there for that? Mm -hmm. imagine can people imagine what the world would look like economically for mm -hmm. black folks had that sherman mm -hmm. order, general sherman's order number 15 been realized in terms of the 40 acres they threw in that, and that mule. mule just the 40 <laughs> acres even if we didn't get the mule damn it let's give us give us the 40 acres. can you imagine yeah. your grandfather to really hold on to that because not everybody's grandfather or grandmothers held on to that. Mm -hmm. And for your grandfather had a kind of vision and imparted generation after generation is a beautiful thing because land ownership is so important. I remember mm -hmm. my grandmother who was born in 1915, my mother's mother, you know, telling the story about her father owned land. And unfortunately my aunts and uncles did not keep that daggone land. So I never had a chance to walk the land, but they did own land. And my grandmother would tell me that her father was always worried that the white man was going to come and try to take his land. You know, he had a shotgun and baby, he was ready. 
And just even hearing you, oh my God. And not, you know, I'm not going to fault my grandmother's generation. I mean, I wish they had a kept the land. They didn't keep the land. So here we are. Right, right. And have somebody like your grandfather who really, really, truly understood that and, and persevered through all of that is absolutely a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I am told that your grandfather's legacy continues to touch you even to this very moment because you recently got married on that very land. Yes, yes. Oh, it was so special. We um, we had an empty chair that we left for him with a photo of me and him on it and one of his old flannel shirts hung over it so that he was there with us. And we did a land acknowledgement too. We honored the indigenous tribe whose land this in, in initially was. Um, and then we honored what it meant for a black man to get that. Because I think a lot of people don't know, we've actually gone back in time. We've gotten worse when it comes to land ownership. So even hearing stories like that, it's not uncommon. And it's so unfortunate that in 1910, we had more land as a community than we do now. But it's also not something I fault us for because I certainly have never had to go up against the barrel of a gun to protect the land that I got married on, right? And I, so I can't, you, you know, we know the stories. We saw what happened to Tulsa. We saw what happened in Philadelphia to the MOVE group. And so when you see those stories, you realize that you could do it all. You could be entrepreneurial, Black Wall Street, all this, and someone will still be threatened by your power. And I am grateful that we still have something to show for our land. But actually, the fact that he had to buy land in his old age, he used his pension to buy it. Um, but his father had had 600 acres in the early 20th century. So the fact that in a generation, we've been working to get some of it back, but we will never, or at least in this generation, I won't say never, you know, I'm working on it, but we won't have that 600 acres in one spot or the ability to work that much land the way that we once were able to. And that's very much because of the type of threats that you're talking about with your family. So it's so unfortunate. I feel every black family that is not you know, a recent migrant family, every black family has a story like that That's of right. being ran out of a town, of being intimidated from doing something and from achieving what you really were called to do and be. And like you said, I just imagine like, where would we be, you know, in the beginning of Black Panther, they're showing what, what um, the country looks like outside of the, what other people perceive it to be. They perceive it to be a farmer town. And then you go into the membrane and they see, oh, it's so modern. I, I wonder what we could be like as a people had all of that not been taken from us. But I see us pushing for it and demanding it all the time. Mm, amen to that. I'm telling you, we could just spend all the time all day talking, <laughs> talking about that. And you brought up move. And I just want to remind people that Black Wall Street was in the in 1920s. Move bombing was in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. That is very recent mm -hmm. history. I mean, this country is young, still young. Uh, when you think about it from the historical continuum, it's a baby nation compared right. to other nations that have existed for thousands of years. Move bombing in Philadelphia. And I want folks to go look it up, read about mm -hmm. what happened in the 80s where the Philadelphia Police Department bombed. Mm -hmm. Black folks mm -hmm. on order. I mean, that's government. The government bombed citizens of this country. Yeah, right on this soil. Right on and, this soil. And that debt still, you know, from 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 Black Wall Street to that debt still ain't been paid. 
Oh yeah. And I mean, talk about a debt not still paid. They're still compounding the harm because it was this year that the families of the victims from that bombing found out that the remains were being held in the basements of an Ivy League university in Philadelphia. And so to even know that it's like, even in death, even in death, we do not have justice. We do not have autonomy. We do not have control over our story. We don't talk about that. And that's what conservatives, when they push against the type of curriculum that we really want to see in schools that is accurate, right? We're not demonizing anybody. They did that to themselves, but it's still happening today. And it's unfortunate that that's not a part of the mainstream canon. You have to listen to people like yourself um, to really get it, but we're not talking about it on a mass scale, the harm that's still being done. No, we are not. And so past is informative. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we, especially as a black people, but certainly indigenous populations and others, mm -hmm. you gotta, you know, James Baldwin said, know from which you came. If you know from which you came, it's virtually mm -hmm. no, you cannot. Mm -hmm gotta understand the past and that is for us as a people i would say any cultural group and everybody has a culture we have our global american culture and then we have the culture of our people our ancestors our tribe you right and that people whose ancestors hail from germany need to understand that history people whose ancestors hail from india need to understand that history and so on and so forth and there is nothing wrong with that it's complicated for us right because Many of us, unless we are, you know, black black people in the diaspora, right? Correctly too. If you are African American, it is so much harder most times for you to be able to trace your lineage past yes. the South, and it's a human yearning to know where you came from. And Bria, yes. what is really bothering me right now is that we do have some white people i will not say all but this mm. critical race theory that this gop is up in a frenzy to something that has existed for mm. the last 40 years that started off in law schools and they're confounding this making it seem like they're not teaching critical race theory in k2 through 12 nor are they teaching it globally even in college they're not doing it right it's a red herring and you know what exactly right want talk they don't want to talk the good the bad and the ugly they don't want the bad and the ugly talk mm -hmm. the founding mm -hmm. of this nation and again james baldwin once said something like you you know everything that's faced can't be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced Oof, yes. well, we gotta be able to talk about the good the bad and the ugly right and the thing but it's because they know they're contradicting themselves it's so interesting that a community of people whose big rallying cry for the last four years has been make America great again. And they don't want to grapple with what is the again. Like, Come let's on. talk about it. If y'all want to make it America great again, what is again? What are you trying to return us to? And let me see if that's good enough and sufficient enough to serve this current community. But they want to talk about the again in that silo. And then when we start to pin at, well, what is that history? Then it's, oh, I, I, I can't have this conversation. And, and that was so long ago. But you're the one bringing it up. We're trying to move forward. We're trying to say there's no point in our history that has been sufficient. And we want something new and better that serves all of us. Y'all are bringing us into the past. And then when we come there with our chalkboards and our lessons, you're upset that we have the nerve to know the past that you're trying to bring us back to. So it's, it's, it's all because they don't know how to be consistent and principled across the board. And it's unfortunately not just them, though, because there are many moderates in the Democratic Party that are in the same breath 
want to us to beg us, our people to show up to the polls and mm. you better, you better shame black people and they better stand in line as long as they did for sneakers. And every time we show up and do what we were supposed to do, and then we see the exit polls like we saw for the gubernatorial race and we see, wait, black people did what we asked them to do. It's the white women that are not coming out for the party who are always in a frenzy anytime the Republican Party does something against their interests. And again, it's we have to talk about the history of that being consistent regardless of which party we're in or we're going to keep getting into these issues and then we won't be able to get people to come out because they're going to know the pattern already. That's it. And, you know, even with the election of uh, Mr. Trump, who's the same mm -hmm. thing, white women overwhelmingly put that man in office and the second go round wasn't much better. I mean, let us not forget that he got, I think, almost 74 million votes somewhere. Right. Right. So that, that, that's very telling. So you ooh, you preaching the gospel. We're going to come back and do this game. Now, I want to make sure <laughs> folks understand critical race theory. Like, I'm not going to yeah. break all the way just superficially critical rate because you know this man was interviewed from virginia and he said he was voting for the republican white guy and he said because that mm. critical race theory that's being taught in schools and when the reporter asked yeah. him what it is he said i can't get into the particulars <laughs> you know and i'm what? not mad at him you know he, he seemed like just an average older white man who's been worked up into a frenzy at least he told the truth look i really don't know what it is but i'm mad as hell about it and the right. reason why he's mad is because of the rhetoric that is being right. pushed by the right wing. Critical race theory is an academic concept that is more than 40 years old, underscore, underline. Mm -hmm. Okay. The core idea is that race is a social construct. Sisters and brothers, family and friends, race is a social construct. It was <laughs> created by folks to control people. We are all from one race and that is the human race. But I digress, Bria. Let me go on and say this. So the core idea is that race is a social construct and that racism is not merely the product of individual bias mm -hmm. or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems. Mm -hmm. Hello, somebody. So ain't no K through 12 teacher. At all. <laughs> ain't not teaching that. At all. At <sighs> all. But, but they don't want even the semblance of race to be in the K-12. And that's, I think, the important thing, that they are so in a frenzy about the word race and the idea that race will be brought up in a classroom that's that they right. can't even understand. Like, oh, wait, well, unless your child is in law school, critical race theory ain't coming up for them. <laughs> for the most part, it's, it's just not. And I, yeah, they don't, they really don't want us to teach America's history. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. 
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Oh, my Lord. So where, I, oh, my God. Let me just. So the role that black women play, mm, you mm. know, in politics and media and organizing and education, that whole intersectionality that Professor Crenshaw really formalized. And that's why people use mm-hmm. it. Some people use intersectionality because it sounds good to say they don't even know what they're talking about. But anyway, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, education, intersectionality and controlling and creating our narrative as author, authors and writers. What has been your experience in that? And what recommendations might you have for women in particular, but not exclusively, we ain't gonna leave our black men out, about really owning that and commanding your space as an activist, as a creator, whatever you're creating, as long as it's beautiful now. (laughs) Yes, oh gosh, this is so, this is so real. I mean, especially when it comes to creating, it's just important in general for us to one, own the narrative because no one's going to get us right but us right you can't speak about or to someone that you don't know um but i think that puts us in a unique position and i love this angela davis quote she says black women have had to develop a larger vision of our society than perhaps any other group they've had to understand white men white women black men and they've had to understand themselves And then Angela Davis continues on to say, when black women win victories, it is a boost for virtually every segment of society. So I think because of that, it serves not only us, but it serves the community at large when black people show up to the table unapologetic about saying, I know what is gonna help me. And I know that anything that helps me as the most vulnerable person in society or one of the most vulnerable and marginalized person in society will help all of y'all. Because if it's going to help make me exist in a more equitable space, that's certainly going to do that for Asian American Pacific Islander people. It's certainly going to do that for non-Black Latinos. It's going to do that for Indigenous communities. Because we start talking about reparations, we got to start talking about land back, right? Like it does all of those things. And so that's what I, it becomes unfortunate though, because I think people love to say it, trust Black women, listen to Black women but they love to do that when it's convenient, right? They love to listen to us when we have the same answer that they have. But when we're saying something different, they're like, well, I don't know. Do you have the experience to be saying what you're saying? Um, Are you off the hinges and just, you know, trying to tear this community down? And I think we have to stand in our truth that we have always known what is best for this country. And anytime this country has listened to us has been the few times we have taken steps forward. And anytime this country has ignored our will, you talked about General Sherman's order, right? Like anytime it's ignored that, we've gone back in time. Um, And so it's so important that we not second guess ourselves, that we not step into rooms with imposter syndrome, because I don't need any uh, validation from a white institution or a person to tell me that what I know to be true about my community is true. Like I just, that's just a fact you cannot ignore. And that's why I love people like you, because it's so clear and apparent that anytime you step in the room, it's you're going to get hello somebody, whether we at a fundraiser, whether we at a church, 
whether we got the podcast, whether we walking down the street and I'm campaigning, whether I'm in the room presenting something. And that, consens- that consistency is something that you can't bottle up and sell. It, you just got to be authentically yourself and trust that when people listen, they, they will get it. Yeah. Oh my God. And just owning our agency too. I mean, it took me mm. to see a grown, grown ass black woman. <laughs> some, some people born knowing this is who I am and this is where I'm standing. And others of us, it takes a while and society will beat up on you, particularly mm. black women, not to be authentically who we are. We got to be somebody else. And we don't all communicate to the world in the same manner. Right. Right and a pain and a trauma that is there in being in a black woman's body and I would even throw colorism out there too Bria yes yes definitely have to deal with as both a society but particularly as a black community but we've been brainwashed the closer to white you are baby the more beautiful you are and we carry that burden yeah. that's been put placed in us unless you deconstruct your construction and that is why for me I wish 12 year old Nina or even 15-year-old Nina had have had the Black Panther. But I'm glad mm-hmm. that Nina, as she is today, did not leave this earth without having a movie of that magnitude that spoke to so many strengths yeah. in who we are mm-hmm. as a Black people and to show the rainbow mosaic of who we are, to show mm-hmm. also that you know hair and, and weaves and all of that is not the end-all be-all. And shout out to my sisters who do that, because I've been through that too. That's not I'm not throwing shade. But it is for us to embrace who we are as we come and that our culture is vibrant and brilliant. It was the centering of yes mm. in all of our beauty, in all mm. of our beauty. Yes. And I'm telling you, I, watch, I must watch that movie at least seven times a year because it was so reaffirming <laughs> and so many lessons to be learned um, from that that I think we we definitely as a people should pick up on, on, on this. Mm. So let us talk about you really believe as I do that black people, but black women in particular, I know I keep saying that we got to own our rest. Yes. We got to get. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Let's, let's, let's rest there for a minute. Talk about Mm -hmm. rest. Can we just settle there and talk about why Mm -hmm. and even in all of your activism, you are inspired to point out that there is a need for people who are in this fight to deliberately seek self-care rest so that they can refuel for the journey or the battle oh my goodness yes i mean you just said that was perfect the refuel for the battle piece is so key because you can't pour from an empty well and there are a lot of activists who are who are running only off of their anger i'm angry enough at this system to keep going but as as soon as your body remembers like wait a second i have a a millisecond to remember how exhausted and tired I am, you will shut down. And that is also how we lose people to these fights, right? People who don't get the chance to refuel. I think about an Erica Garner, because of course we talk about victims of police brutality, right? But we don't talk about this system makes the families fight so hard, they they kill themselves just fighting for justice. And Erica Garner was 27 and died of a heart attack. That, that should not be. Her baby, Bria. And I'm sorry, right. I am deliberately jumping in on this. I hope you don't lose your thought. No, please do. I, I knew Erica. I was, you know, Erica saw me as a mentor. I first met her in 2016 when Senator Bernie Sanders was running. She yes. forced him. Mm-hmm. That commercial that many people saw, that was her oh, creation. God. That was her vision. The experts in commercial making took her vision, her vision, and brought mm-hmm. it life i remember being at the apollo with her bria 
and and Charlemagne the guy, he was the moderator. Mr. Harry Belafonte was I there. I was there. Yes. Erica was there. I was yes. there. And oh my God, it just gives me chills just to mm -hmm. think about how hard that young sister was fighting to keep the life of her father and to bring justice to him mm -hmm. alive and, and what she went through emotionally and physically so oh. much so she birthed her baby into the world and shortly after she had a heart attack. It's just making me tear up. Yeah, I, I think about everything that she did and what was left to be for her to do. Yes. So I'm sorry. I just, I wanted to. Don't apologize. I'm so glad that you oh. could bring in that personal element. I had organized with her a few times on a few occasions. And as you said, it's, she gave her everything for justice and for the city to take all of that. And then even after her death, to to barely get the justice that she deserved to say we're not going to let this happen again on our watch they didn't commit to that and it's so frustrating to see that happen because then it says i would have rather her been alive than for her to go blue in the face yelling at this system yelling at this mayor yelling at this governor and get nothing in return for it what did we get for her sacrifice it wasn't a sacrifice she didn't sign up to be a martyr and it's so unfortunate that so many activists and families of victims of police brutality and other injustices have to send themselves into early graves, pursuing even a semblance of justice. And I don't want that. I want her bouncing a baby on her lap. I want Erica Garner going to a graduation and saying, this is for your grandfather who you didn't get to meet. And now that baby is gonna have some more in the both of them and know that that's a part of their legacy and have to heal through that, right? It's, we're creating generations of trauma. And I'm committed to, as my, my sister in this work, Taylor K. Shaw says, to creating generational leisure for black people. And to say, we deserve all of the rest that we can get. And there's something I, I think we get so caught up in like the symbolism and we gotta stay fighting, we gotta stay fighting. And I really think like when my ancestors who were sitting in a rickety little shack in um, North Carolina, when they dreamed of freedom and liberation, they, you know, listen, I love a vacation like the best of them, but I don't know if that was in their vision. I think they visioned waking up on a Sunday and, not, and that not being their only day of rest. I envisioned them waking up on a Wednesday and saying, what am I going to do today? And having the choice to choose that. And so when we, who are in some ways so much more freer than them, but when we allow ourselves to be shackled by other people saying, oh, you can't do that. You can't take time for yourself. You can't rest, whether we tell it to ourselves or we allow people to tell us we are in that same place. Like if I tell myself, oh, I, I got to wait until I've achieved this thing to rest we are delaying the liberation that was so hard fought for. And I just refuse to get to that place. Well, my body needs a nap. I'm taking a nap. <laughs> like it's just going to happen because I know that my grandfather's grandfather didn't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. And if one thing I'm going to do is rest when somebody tells me I can't. And I'm so grateful for people like Naomi Osaka who are telling us that too, right? Who are saying, oh, wait, you thought she was going to wring me dry and get everything you wanted out of me? Absolutely not. I will leave this industry before I let y'all take everything from me at the age of 23. And I love that. I love that. Yeah, I'm right with you. One of the gospels that I preached to along the trail and it's more, you know, when I think about the struggle, it is both caste and class. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. I talk to the class struggle, which is, there's an intersection, reality, Professor Crenshaw, to the class struggle, 
I say that we are in a society right now that values that that definitely puts a value mm-hmm. on the lives of people who have the most money and want poor people to work their fingers to the bone for pennies while CEOs and other folks get platinum parachutes even when they monk up a place they get millions and millions of dollars to leave the place but now we got to beg people for a 15 dollar an hour minimum wage people got to work right even four jobs to make ends meet. Mm. Rhea where's the rest in that they don't get mm. the rest do they deserve mm. to be able to buy a certified used car every now and then you know I say that all the time. Right. Do, they, do they get a right to take a vacation even if it's just going around the corner down the street right, right now even in that congress you got some of these selfish as Congress people yes. that are negotiate away, even paid family and medical leave. So now right. a, poor, a poorer woman or working class woman and father, they, they do, man, do not get a chance or family and friend member do not get a chance to take, take some time off to be with their baby that they just birthed in the world. Or if one of their parents gets sick, they don't get the time. They have to decide whether to spend the time with those, their family members or lose their job. Right. Press right. kills. Poverty right. heals. So I, I am with you. Let's let's mm. reclaim that. And especially black people. I love the way you say, hey, I'm taking mine because my ancestors could not. Because y'all worked <laughs> to death, literally. Right. Literally. Death. Mentally, and physically, <laughs> and spiritually. No, truly, in every sense of the word. Every and I, it's like, I'm certainly not going to do all this for a country that can't even apologize for what they did, let alone teach it and acknowledge it. There ain't no way I'm gonna put myself in an early grave for a country that won't even say, like the fact that it had to be a black person and his nonprofit to build the only museum acknowledging lynchings and the legacy of slavery in this country. But we've gotta, listen, I, I can be on this soapbox all day, but it's truly, I'm, I'm not gonna do it before this country commits to reparations. Now, once we've, once we've acknowledged and talked about real equity in this country, then we can be on equal footing that says, well, we've all got to put in our, but no, my, my price has been paid I by know my that. God and by my ancestors. There it is. We, we 400 years behind. So y'all got a lot of making up to do. Right. I'm charging interest. Like Dr. Katie said, coming for the check. Yeah, we are. Yes. And a whole lot of other stuff too. Oh my God, Bria, this has been so, so good. You got to promise me that you're, you are going to come back and be with us on Hello Somebody. You are such a bright light. You illuminate the place. And I am so glad that you are within your mission. You know, what you believe that the creator called you to do. We all have a purpose. I firmly believe that. They got to find, everybody got to find their purpose. And yes. you have certainly found yours and you are just getting started. Can you tell, tell, tell us a little bit before we part for now, because we coming back together about <laughs> yes. the book that you're writing about Black land ownership and the long-term impacts of, of land theft. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, first of all, it is an honor to even hear you saying that, Senator Turner. So I would love to come back and we can keep key it up. Um, but I'm so excited about this book. I'm publishing it with One World, who is just a an imprint of Penguin Random House that is known for speaking truth to power. And so I feel in such good company there. It's the home of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project okay. and of Ibram Kendi's books. And there's so many brilliant writers there. And I see this book as an opportunity for us to reckon. I think there have been so many who have talked about our criminal justice system and have talked about pay gaps and all of those things. And I feel that there has been a missing puzzle piece about how much has been stolen from us even since slavery. Because people say, oh, it was so long ago. 
we know that slavery was not that long ago, but even if we're going to accept the lie that it was, the land theft has been so much more recent and is still happening. And so I think people know about the Tulsas, but they don't really know about the everyday stories of families who migrated, not because they were like, oh, I think the North would be nice to visit. Oh, I think I might have some cool economic opportunities. They fled in fear right? Truly refugees in every sense of the word, leaving everything behind. Um, and oftentimes that property got sold or bought up by someone who didn't have the right to sell or buy it or take it. And we now have this gap that we can't get out of. And we have a lot of families that are working class and don't have um, a, a positive net worth to show for themselves, not because they don't work hard, but because they've had everything they've worked for taken from them. And I really want to tell that story. I really want people to see the timeline of that theft and see the impact, not just on us, um, but I think an important part that's coming up in the book is that it's hurt everyone. The quality of the land and the air and the water is significantly worse now that indigenous and black communities are not the stewards of the land. Now that we've got these major corporations and Monsanto and, and Continental Can Company, all of these companies that take and extract everything they can from the land, we've got communities that get hit by a hurricane and are just wiped out. We've got communities that can't that are having tornadoes and that was never a thing before. And I don't think that we've been equating that the climate disaster we're in has partly been because the people who used to own the land and work the land were people who were in relationship to the land that treated it like the living thing that it is. And now we've got people who said, oh, wait, well, after 100 years of only growing cotton on it, only growing tobacco on it. Now you don't want to yield anything for me. And this land doesn't feed us the way that it was. And we are so abundant in land, but it is being hoarded by a select few people. And that's what I'm hoping this book can really help people see is like, we've got to get it back. The, the promise of reparations is not something that's too, it's too late to deliver on. We can and should still deliver on it. And what we're seeing now with Bruce's Beach, for example, in California, where a family that had their prime real estate taken from them is getting it back. We can do that around the country and see what it does for not just the racial wealth gap, but also the quality of that land for the access that other people have to it. Yeah, and for us all, and when you talk about when you elevate lift and have a reckoning with some truth and reconciliation and a reckoning with what happened to African-Americans and their descendants or Africans first and then their descendants, which are uh, African-Americans, it does lift everyone and people need to see it that way. Uh, Heather McGee wrote a book, The Sum of Us. Yeah, the sum, yes. Right, yes. And hearing you talk reminds me of that because she's very clear in that book. I am laying out the summation of what being anti-black, being racist, being bigoted mm. has done not to the just the black community, but to all of us and how we can get back to that, uh, to, to maybe not back because we've never really been there, collective <laughs> consciousness that mm -hmm. changes what is to what can be. And I think your book is certainly going to shine a beautiful, beautiful light. I cannot wait to read it. I cannot wait to interview you about it. When When is it uh, scheduled to come out? 2023. So maybe we could talk next year again about it and it'll be in a, in a firm place. But I I am so excited for you to read it. I'm going to make sure you get one of the first copies. <laughs> Please. And we're going we're gonna to come back together way before 2023. I would love, again, you are such a bright light. And another point that you made as, as we gather ourselves for this session about that not being so long ago, 
we don't even have to go back to the enslavement of our ancestors, the still, you know, the not the the, the broken promise of the 40 acres and the mule, but even just in 2008, Bria, and I'm sure you're going to deal with that. Black people lost half of their wealth because of their home ownership exploded during the Great Recession. Even that has not been dealt with. Just, just, right, even right. just 2008 before we get to go all the way, all the right. way. We haven't even dealt with 2008. And also the fact the government, the properties, the home values of people who live in most black communities, certainly not right. all, is less than that of our white sisters and brothers and family and friends. And so that theft has been generational yes. and we can just stick in the 21st century. Don't even right. let us going back to the 20th century and the all 19th right. century and the 18th. We can just rest. Stay right here. And it's, still, and it's so sad because to merge all the conversations we've been having, there was a recent you know, I'll give President Biden a little kudos here, though I have a lot of critiques, right? Um, but he had earmarked um, several billion dollars of funding to go to Black farmers in repair for USDA discrimination that had happened in the 1900s. So we're not talking anything else before that, but just the USDA's discrimination. Okay, we, we're going to earmark some billions of dollars to repair that. And we're going to tie it to some COVID funding because we know that y'all are also being hit hard, hard in this moment. And right. that funding was supposed to go out and then white farmers sued. And yeah. now that funding is, is staying in limbo because they're claiming reverse discrimination. And it's just so clear how little we know about our history that anybody could be accusing black farmers of reverse discrimination when in regard, like they have been on the front lines of so many different fights. And so it's just, it's clear, we've got to educate people better. Right. We've got to see our solidarity because the reality is any funding that makes it to black farms will then be feeding communities. And, and then we'll be addressing a lot of the areas that white America is trying to figure out how to fix in black communities, right? So it's just working, again, working against the interests and we need white farmers and white people in general to see themselves as part of our fight and say, wait, not only am I not gonna stand in the way, but I'm gonna be a really loud voice in the chorus saying that you deserve better and I want you to get it as opposed to thinking that our liberation comes at the expense of theirs. Because once we start addressing racial justice, we'll also be addressing class justice and we'll be addressing the white working class folks who have yes. been passed up. And But we can't even get there because they won't let us finish the sentence, right? Yeah. So there we are. No, that solidarity is real. Again, the sum of us, okay? Yes. Uh, no, no, yes. it is definitely, definitely real. It makes me think of what I say to people if we just close our eyes right now. And I want everybody that's here with three of myself, just mm -hmm. if you're driving, don't close your eyes. But mm -hmm. if you just walking around or laying around, just maybe not even walking. If you're standing or sitting or laying, you just close your eyes and just picture us on a beach and that each and every one of us had a pail. And the person that's the host on this beach says, Get as much sand as you can. Now, before you close your eyes, you can see sand further than what the eyes can see. And if all of us had pails and we were instructed to get that sand, you wouldn't look to the left or to the right or to the front or behind of you and be threatened by how much sand the next person puts in their mm. pail because mm. you can see sand. I mean, sand exists beyond what you can see. That Ooh. is what this moment is about, Bria, that we got to mm. get working class solidarity across gender and sexual orientation and religion yes, and ethnicity yes. and say damn it there's enough sand for all of us now some of Ooh. us deserve a little more because of the mm -hmm. historic hurdles but when bria gets her sand that makes me better hello yes yes now oh my it. god that's it
no sand. That, that, oh, you just dropped the mic right there. That analogy is so perfect. There's enough sand for all of us. For all of us, baby. Mm. Let's get it collected. But it does cause us to have to have some courage mm. to recognize that certain injustices was were certain injustices exist and were done based on somebody's race and ethnicity. That those right. are the facts. You can't right. be history but your justice doesn't impede on mine as a matter of fact mm. it enhances my justice See, they don't oh my gosh they don't get it they don't get it because if they got it we would see a lot different things in the current society that we're in but i think that enough people are beginning to get it right we're in this period that people are calling the great resignation and people are unionizing left and right and are saying i deserve better in the workplace we're in a racial reckoning we're all communities of color are saying i deserve better everywhere that i go oh. and i really believe that people are beginning to wake up to the fact that wait i've been blaming this person next to me and it's that person of it's somebody up there who I'm not seeing, but their invisible hand is what's pitting me against you. And I won't let them win. Won't let them win. Solidarity, mm. baby, forever. Yes, yes, yes. Hello, oh somebody. My God, Rhea. This <laughs> is it. We, you, we got to have you come back. I, I mean, we got to, we have got to get you back on Hello, Somebody. It has been an absolute pleasure and honor to be in conversation, this deep, powerful, emotional conversation mm. with you today. And I look forward to watching your growth and all of the things that you are going to continue to do to uplift humanity. Hello, somebody. Uh, thank you so, so much, Senator Turner. And I am so grateful to you for who you are and what you bring to every space that you enter. And thank you so much for this conversation and for those to come. And I can't wait to stay tuned with you on the journey. Oh, thank you. Back at you. I so enjoyed it. is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.